So warm welcome again. Uh, we'll start uh, momentarily here. And so we'll start maybe by just uh, inviting some reflections and sharing from the group or any questions you may have about uh, the suttas and um, last class. Uh, just want to offer some space for some reflection and love to hear from you. Um, or if you just share, you know, if I had um, read the sutta yourself and kind of explored a little more yourself, um, how was that for you? Um, and maybe I'll just jump in and say, and if you didn't come here on Tuesday and this is your first time here, that's okay too. Yep, that's okay too. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you, Diana, for pointing that out. Yeah. And uh, if you want to use the um, Zoom hand, that may be helpful. Um, so, Peggy. Oh, you have to unmute. It was kind of a high, a high bar for me. So I, I have to be careful not to get discouraged because it's almost like from here to here. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess uh, the... So I think we lost your voice a little. Or is it me? Can you hear Peggy? I can hear you. Yes. Oh, you know what? It's these. Ah. <laughs> okay. So I, I saw you were I was saying, saying something. Um, yeah. It, that it's, it's a high bar for me. So I, I guess the practice is the stairway. It just seems like, would I ever get there? I know. Mm. So I, I mm. probably one day at a time the same way. Yeah. I stay sober and just keep practicing. Yeah, keep practicing. I, I love that. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And the teachings help me be hopeful. Right. Yeah. And inspire me. And all of you. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I'll add that uh, when I very, very first got introduced to Buddhism, a friend of mine gave me a copy of the Dhammapada, which is a collection of verses, very like similar to what we're doing. And I sometimes would feel the exact same way, Peggy. I would like be in tears, like, this is so beautiful, but who can do this? Like, I, I'm so far from this. But just like Ying said, you know, here I am years later feeling, oh yeah, my life is going this direction. I'm not going to say I'm perfect and exactly like that, but just this recognition that I also started with some sadness. For me, it was sadness, like, oh, I'm so far from this, but recognizing there really has been some movement that direction. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And I also uh, uh, wanted to, uh, in the spirit of uh, uh, practicing and studying together, uh, this noticing uh, ourselves of comparing and judging ourselves uh, is actually um, uh, not always supportive. And so this is a great um, realm for practicing as well. And uh, I resonate with what Diana was saying. Um, you know, I had a similar feeling myself uh, reading, uh, often even now reading the suttas. <laughs> Kind of the contrast can be so, so big. But at some point, what I recognized was, um, uh, that 
well, this practice is um, not an easy practice, and sometimes it feels like it's a hard enough. Just by adding additional judgment and comparing mind, it just makes it worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so maybe I just allow myself to continue this gradual training, gradual path. Yeah. So thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. Uh, Charles. Thank you. I just wanted to say I had not read the Sutta until after we had our session on Tuesday. And having that discussion during the session was very helpful. And when I read it, I was able to pause and think about it and also think about some of the metaphors used that I've seen in other writings, you know, like the building a raft across to the other shore and and those sorts of things. Um, So I I got a lot out of it during the session, but also afterward reading the Sutta and pausing and thinking about it. And and, uh, anyway, I, I very much appreciate this. This has been a great learning experience. Thank you. Yeah, great, great. Delighted to hear that. Yeah, there's so many ways of um, kind of learning and practicing with um, the sutta. And the four of us, every time we discuss these things, there's just endless dimensions coming alive. <laughs> yeah, so I'm glad that this this was manifesting for you as well. Any of my co-teachers like to say something? Maybe I'll, I'll add uh, again. I'll add something that um, I I gave a Dharma talk on that sutta years ago, and I you know thought I had spent time looking at it, but now I feel like oh, there's so much more here. So I just love this that there's this depth and this breadth to the suttas. They often, I mean, always, I would say, are worthwhile to read again and again and again. I just love this how there's different layers and. I don't know, different interpretations, or maybe we might have had some different experiences that we can relate to. So here we go. Diana, again, is saying, yeah, I've had that experience too. I like to think that the teachings somehow speak to the part of us that is needing something at that moment. It's a little bit hard to explain how that happens, but we have things inside that are questions or you know something bubbling beneath the surface and when we read something that's in that territory there will be a resonance with that and so we I often get the impression that I read a teaching and it's saying just what I needed to hear but that's of course because something in me was um, primed for that in some way and so starting to understand that there is this dialogue that goes on I think is a great aid in in learning to walk the path. Well said. Um, a quick comment from anyone. Well, if not, I'm going to pass it on to Kim, who's going to start a new sutta today. Okay, thank you. So, 
Today we begin with uh, Sutta Nipata 1.1, the snake or the serpent. Um, and we'll just start with uh, reading some, just a few of the initial verses. So, you know, please get yourself in a mindset to, to listen. When anger surges, they drive it out, as with medicine, a snake's spreading venom. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far, as a serpent its old worn-out skin. They've cut off greed entirely, like a lotus plucked, flower and stalk. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far, as a serpent its old worn-out skin. They've cut off craving entirely, drying up that swift-flowing stream. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far, as a serpent its old worn-out skin. They've swept away conceit entirely, as a fragile bridge of reeds by a great flood. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far, as a serpent its old worn-out skin. In future lives, they find no substance, as an inspector of fig trees finds no flower. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far, as a serpent its old worn-out skin. They hide no anger within, gone beyond any kind of existence. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far, as a serpent its old worn-out skin. Their mental vibrations are cleared away, internally clipped off entirely. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a serpent, its old worn out skin. Thank you, Kim. So maybe we'll unpack this a little bit or talk about this. First of all, I'll say that, okay, so this is called the Snake Sutta. And in the Indian culture, the snake is a powerful symbol, very powerful. And some deities are associated with it. And in Buddhism, we see that this, uh, the Nagas that are these creatures that, um, we don't have a lot of it in early Buddhism in the Pali Canon, but it's certainly there. This idea that, they uh, are practitioners of the, and want to become, want to ordain, their story about them wanting to ordain and things like this. So this sutta as a whole, we might say, has this form of a reflection on what is required for complete liberation. And of course, it's pointing to this emphasis on letting go of what is no longer needed, shedding, sloughing off, abandoning, getting rid of, moving beyond that type of thing. And there's lots of metaphors, right? The whole thing is, we could say, is filled with all these different metaphors, which can be kind of fun if we kind of think to unpack them and what are they pointing to. And not only has these metaphors, but has a lot of repetitive elements, right? The couplet at the end of each of these stanzas is the same. And David will talk more about this later, but I'll just briefly say that um, this couplet at the end such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a, I'm going to say as a snake, it's old worn out skin. 
I mean, Bhikkhu Sajata is doing serpent. I'm not sure. I, myself as a translator, I would use the word snake because we all know that snakes shed skin. I haven't encountered very many serpents. I don't know if serpents <laughs> shed their skin or not, but, and the word uraga here definitely could be translated as snake. So what does this mean? A mendicant sheds the near shore and the far. And I'll, I'll just briefly say that one way we could interpret this is as old identities, like old ways of being, old ways of uh, conceiving of ourselves or conceiving of the world or um, just kind of like some of the ideas that we have. As I said, uh, David will unpack that some more. But as a snake, it's old, worn out skin. Well, what does that mean? So some, some of us might know this, but you know, the snakes are kind of fascinating. I think it's fascinating. As humans, like we're shedding skin all the time, right? But it's just cells at a time. Whereas snakes, as their body grows, the skin doesn't grow. So they shed it all at once. And it helps them to the for the to grow, but also really importantly, the skin um, often has little parasites, right? Because snakes are all touching in the ground all the time, right? So the shedding of the skin is also shedding of things that are harmful and certainly not helpful. And the shedding starts as a natural process that uh, there starts to be like some looseness around the head in the beginning, and the um, the skin. But there's a, like a fluid that happens between the body and the skin, and it covers the eyes a little bit. So they can't quite see clearly. And so their eyes are a little bit more opaque. And so it's this natural process. And then the snake starts to rub itself against something that's uh, rough to kind of like push, right? They don't have arms or hands, right? To push the skin back over the head so that they can see clearly. Right, we can see how this is such a great metaphor in so many different ways. So it starts naturally, but then the snake has to participate, has a little bit of effort is needed, has to scrape itself against things. But then after it shed the skin, the snake is free. Before it had been constricted, now it's free in a way that it wasn't before. And it's the new skin is softer and more flexible, malleable, can work with the snake. And the skin never goes back to its old worn out skin, right? It sheds it and moves on. So I think this is fantastic about how snakes shed skin. It's just a really interesting thing. And I would like to share a little video. So I talked us through, but now let's see it happen. This is like so different than just a person describing it. So I'm going to share a short video. I'm hoping that this is, I practiced with this. I'm hoping it's going to turn out here. This is just a minute and a half. Can I give a thumbs up if all you see is a black thing here? Yep. Okay. Here we go. Can you do this? Step one, hold the face. We're rubbing. There's some 
Entertainment. So just this, uh, I, I wanted, uh, Kim uh, sent us that video and I kind of like the upbeat music too, right? It's like, okay, this I'm is... not sure what to do with your snake or... Oh, oh here we go. Oops, there we go. So my YouTube wanted to continue uh, playing. So this idea of shedding the skin, it's a natural process. It allows more freedom afterwards. And in this poem that we're reading in the Sutta Napata, what are the things that are getting shed? Anger, craving, conceit, papancha, this like mental proliferation and greed, lust, hatred, delusion, these unwholesome roots, distress, entanglement, hindrances. Like we can see where these are things, even by some of the language, that we don't need. And so this movement towards greater freedom, we can think of it as just sloughing off what is no longer needed. So with that, I'll turn it over to Ying. So thank you. Thank you, Diana. That was very fun. Uh, so give you a visceral sense of shedding. <laughs> so we are going to practice for a while and uh, we'll be uh, meditating for about 15 minutes or so. And maybe in a way, kind of uh, practicing a, a process of a shedding <laughs> with our own uh, inner being. And so uh, maybe uh, finding a space where you can uh, meditate for about 15 minutes or so. <clears throat> And just take a few moments to allow your being to arrive here, wherever you are going to meditate. And gently settle into the space. Maybe finding a sense of settling down on the chairs, the cushions. Arriving here and now. The first few moments, it's often helpful to just invite a few long deep breaths. 
And as you breathe out, right along the out breath, to settle deeper into wherever you're sitting. And relaxing, softening, settling. Allow the gravity to do its trick. Letting weight settle down. At the beginning of this meditation, just allow some sense of a grounding, resting to happen. Maybe by feeling into the pelvic floor, making contact with the earth or the chairs. being supported allow this earthy body to rest on earth From a grounded place in the lower half of the body, you can travel upwards. To invite the sensations of the torso, arms, hands, neck, head, face. Allow all the felt sense to come alive. Maybe you feel the movements of the breath. Coursing through the torso, chest, belly. Maybe you notice pulsing, tingling, vibrations in different parts of the body. Noticing any constrictions or tightening in the body, could be in the belly, 
around the jaw. And make space to release the constriction. Inviting, relaxing and easing. Like shedding, shedding the constriction, the limitations, the tightening. Receiving the felt sense of this embodied experience. Becoming sensitive to the movements of narrowing, tightening, or the releasing of the tightening, opening. As you stay with the felt sense of the body, you may notice the fluidity of the ever-changing experience. Movements of the breath. the bubbly sensations, energetic feel, maybe the boundaries of the body, soften, as if the old worn out skin is coming off.
Letting go of any conceptualization of how the body is supposed to feel or look like. Shedding the holding of the views, ideas, letting the lived experience reveal itself. Shedding by allowing the alive experience to flow freely. Can breathe freely. The energy can dance freely.
Thank you for that, Ying. Really wonderful. Lovely. Before we move to some breakout rooms, we just wanted to leave a few minutes to ask for reflections on the meditation offered by Ying or questions about Diana's teaching. So if you have a thought or a query, feel free to raise your Zoom hand, wave your hand around, unmute and speak. We're few and few enough in number today that we can probably be a little less formal, but the Zoom hand is, is best if you can find it. If there are any questions or reflections. Or continue to sit in quiet after that lovely meditation. Well, I'd also invite any uh, uh, comments about the little video that Diana shared also. <laughs> what did you see? There, there's a hand up. Uh, Sangeeta. Yeah. Yeah. Hi. So, so um, thank you for the lovely meditation. Uh, what came to me was, uh, you know, sometime back, uh, uh, I've been doing the tradition of the Vipassana and the Goenkaji tradition. So where, of course, there's a lot of focus on the body sensation. Uh, and I'm from India. Uh, so actually, we grew up uh, with a lot of these uh, stories from the Jataka tales. So as children, we read a lot of these stories. Uh, but so I could relate back to the childhood bond experiences. That was one. And the second aspect, which was um, uh, which was really wonderful, was um, there was this uh, meditation I did some years back on the skin bag. So I could literally feel, um, you know, um, so not only a metaphor, but actually my skin. And I could go inside and say, Ki, where is Sangeeta? You know, if it's not for the skin, then it's just the organs, the you know, the fluids, the bones and the skeletons. So, uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, it became little. Uh, yeah. So it was quite intense. And thank you. Yeah. So I could actually feel that, you know, I could literally feel the skin off. And then who am I? There's no color. Yeah. There's no nationality. There is no caste. There is no religion. Nothing at all. We are all just nice organs nice. and bones and muscles and sinews. Yeah. So thank, thank you for that experience. Thank you, Sangeeta. Yeah, I think something that your comment brings our attention to is how in repeating these phrases that show up, particularly in the verse, um, the verses that we find in the, in the Pali Canon and the suttas, um, we, we go from these metaphors into the very deepest of the teachings that are offered. Uh, who am I? Um, what I, what is it that I, this, this, this skin that I take to be real, to be a reflection of me, to be me, it's, it turns out it's just a skin. And it, to the extent that it was constricting me, constricting who I might really be in the world or what I might really offer in the world, it can be shed. And it's sort of a discovery to find that, yeah, it can be shed. So 
right, these aren't just metaphors. They actually lead us, they point us, they direct us, they bring us um, into, into the deep teachings. So anyway, that was lovely. I really don't think I can add anything better than what Sankita has shared. Um, why don't we move, Kim, to the breakout groups and you can tell us what we're going to address there. Okay, great. So uh, now is an opportunity for uh, you to talk with each other about what we've heard so far. And so um, we'd like you to reflect together with your group. How do you understand the notion of shedding the skin of a snake? And maybe not so much like ideas and concepts, but, you know, how might it actually feel to you? How does it actually feel to you in practice experience if you have some experience with something like this? And um, as before, I think we'll do it in a um, making soup kind of fashion where each person is adding an ingredient in some way and we don't have a sense that we need to say absolutely everything about this the first time, but let it go around several rounds and um, kind of resonate with each other and build a mosaic or a mural or a soup, however you want to see that. And I just also want to say one word about a couple words about how to be in these groups, because that is in itself a, a skill and uh, it's helpful um, just for this creation process of the, you know, the, the shared understanding if we don't have a stance of uh, educating others or advising others, uh, things like that. So just bear in mind, you know, how, how you're being in the group with a sense of um, creating something together and, and really listening, listening to others in order to know what comes up next for you. Okay, so with that, you'll be in the rooms for about 12 minutes, and um, have fun. Welcome back. Oh. Oh. All right. Thank you, you're all transported back. So welcome back. And I wanted to just bow out. And I uh, realized I have to teach at 9.30 when we scheduled this and, and didn't realize that I had a little conflict. So I'm going to bow out. And it was great being with you all. And uh, the rest of the teachers will carry on for the rest of the class today. All right. Take care, everybody.
Okay, great. So, um, so now if there are any questions or comments, um, we would love to hear any of the wonderful wisdom that you probably shared. Oh, wow. Okay, great. Let's start with Aditi. Yeah, thank you so much for these teachings. Um, in our group, uh, we were on two sides. There was uh, some talk about like uh, fear being debilitating. And then there was talk about fear being the motivator behind what we do. And it was pointing out that the snake naturally sheds. So for us as yogis, like I wonder, would it just be like trust in the practice and hoping that it sheds on our on its own? Or would there be more efforting needed? Okay, this is an interesting question um, because we often wonder, you know, when we see something in the mind that is unwholesome or unskillful or we can just feel that it's limiting in some way, uh, we then wonder, well, do I need to do something about that or uh, is it better to kind of wait or just see it with mindfulness, something like that. And the reason why, maybe why it's a question that comes up is that there isn't a single answer to that. Uh, there are times when it's best to uh, take an active role. And um, certainly if we're about to cause harm, you know, restraining ourselves from saying that comment that, you know, et cetera. Um, and other times where, say, we're sitting in meditation and it's nice to just um, be with something that comes up and say, okay, I see that. Um, let's really investigate that or let's feel the constriction of it, which will allow, you know, eventually things to naturally let go. In the long run, the answer to your question is that you don't do anything and that it will uh, shed because we don't um, have control over that. And we also should get used to the letting go that is natural and just comes about from the conditions being in place. But we do have some role in putting the conditions in place for things to be able to let go. And that's where the art is. I think you'll feel as you if you try to make something go away, that it's not always effective, right? Much as we might wish. Um, yeah, so it's a process. I'll invite my teachers to add to my fellow teachers to add. But it's um, does that start to address your question or did you have a something more specific? And that's a wonderful, a very helpful answer. Thank you. Okay, great. Uh, Susan, and I know your video is not working, so it's okay. Yes, it's not working. <laughs> um, I just wanted to make a comment about the shedding, uh, because as something has been shed, you've got some very tender skin under there, very fresh, like baby skin. And you've probably shed something that you were relying on to keep you safe. And so you've shed that. And so going forward, you have to take little baby steps. You have to move very carefully uh, as you go forth. And then that skin, of course, toughens up. And then you go through this process again. But it's very vulnerable for a period of time. Thank you for highlighting that. It is certainly true that um, we can feel, you know, as we let go of things that we, you said they were protective. Maybe we thought they were protective or they actually were for a while. 
but there comes a time where we don't need something that we have been using, you know, as a protection in a sense. Um, and then, uh, yeah, it can feel very, uh, tender, let's say, right when that opens. And we, there's maybe a little question in the heart. Is it going to be okay not to have that skin that I had before? And so there's almost a, maybe a little tentativeness or, yeah, vulnerability. And we come through practice, I think, to have some trust in that process. But there is a need for compassion, for care, for a little bit protecting that new skin because it, um, you know, it is a little bit tender at first. But the process is so beautiful that we learn to go through that in a graceful way and have some trust of that. But it's definitely not the process that we're encouraged through society, through sometimes through our culture or our family for moving through things. So it can take some time to to trust the way that, that letting go and shedding happens. And new skin really feels good, though. Well, it's, it's more subtle, fresh. right? <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you guys noticed on the video how beautiful that snake looked when, you know, when the the, the skin had kind of a dulling effect. And when it, it sheds off, it's like it almost looks oily or wet. The snake is so bright. It reminds me of there's a sutta where um, Sariputta has just awakened and he comes to see his friend Mogalana. And Mogalana says, wow, you're face looks just glowing you know have you maybe had some breakthrough and it's the you know this is this shedding process or maybe you've seen at the end of retreats how fresh everyone's face looks compared to a week earlier this is not um it's not accidental (laughs) okay um paul yeah, my question, and maybe maybe this is just something you're going to address uh, still, but uh, it's the other line right before the the shedding of the skin is the near and far shore. And, uh, you know, I just, I get a little tripped up because, uh, you know, there's so many other suttas that use the that kind of simile and there, whereas there's the raft that we uh, shed, not the far shore. So I was a little troubled by the shedding of the far shore. And I was wondering if you had any uh, comments about that. Yeah, um, I think David is going to address that in his talk. But just at a top level, um, you are correct in in, uh, assessing that the use of the term far shore is different in this sutta than it is in um, several other suttas, such as um, MN22, where we have the the raft and the, the letting go of that. Usually the far shore is the aim, you know, it's the nirvana or the um, state of awakening. Um, So here it is slightly different. Um, Do you want to say anything now, David, or should we just wait for your for your talk? Oh, let's just wait a moment. Okay, okay. Um, Maria, let's. Good morning. I have a question about the text itself. Um, the text reads, uh, when anger surges, they drive it out. Who does that they, that pronoun, refer to? 
Uh, it refers to the practitioner. Um, That's what I thought. My guess is that that is used. It's not a plural. I guess it's used uh, so it doesn't look like masculine, which is what the original text has. It says he. Okay. Okay, good. That was my question. Thank you. Great. Anything else? All right, David. Oh, wait, no, wait, we have Peggy. Um, the question arose, I think, for me, how outer conditions in our life can support inner conditions. And sometimes as we move to shed whatever inner qualities, the outer conditions of our life might be set in a way that encourages wholesome or unwholesome qualities or something in between. So sometimes, quite often, the question arises, do I need to let go of this, this, or this, which could end up um, causing upheaval in the whole life, basically. So it's it's... In some ways, it's harder to imagine the gradual shedding and letting go that happens organically at times, which I do think is the nicest way to go, but I'm not sure if it works sometimes. So your your language is revealing that you have a preference for how you would like the path to unfold. You're pointing to something very profound, actually, is that um, the inner and the outer affect and reflect each other in certain ways. And, you know, if we're living a life where we're working 60 hours a week and when we come home, we're on the computer until late at night watching violent videos. uh, And then we're trying to get up early in the morning and have a whole bunch of coffee so we can do another 12 hour workday. That's not really going to support having a calm, easeful meditation when we sit down. So I'm making an extreme example, of course, but um, there is that relationship, and this path is a you know the eightfold path includes our speech, our actions, our way of living. Uh, livelihood is not just your job and how you earn money. Livelihood is your life and how you're living, your lifestyle, and all of that. Your relationship to the community of support that supports every human. So we have to attend to those things as well as our way of thinking, our way of practicing on the cushion and we don't always get a choice about how those changes happen you know there are times where we set our mind on practice and it's fine we're able to just fold that into our life and it makes things easier and smoother and we let go progressively Uh, and there are other times where being on this path means we make a sudden change you know it's like I can't be in this job anymore. You know, after you practice for five years, that's it. Um, it happens that way sometimes. Um, or sometimes any combination of things. And so it's helpful to have a sangha, helpful to have a teacher to help support us in understanding this interplay of outer and inner. But I have complete confidence that whether it's easy or hard, there is a path that you know, that can keep unfolding. We'll figure it out. We'll figure a way based on our inner and outer conditions to get through things. Other comments from my co-teachers? No. Okay, David, then. 
yeah, I hope some of the things I say will maybe chime in with some of the questions and also with Kim's that response that Kim just made. That was that was lovely, Kim. Um, because I think I'd like to just say a couple things about the metaphors that are used in the sutta because I think they take us very deep, deep into the teachings, and because they're maybe. Uh, superficially straightforward metaphors, but as we dig into them, we find, oh, you know, they're very, very well, they're very carefully selected. Um, so this overarching metaphor that captures the idea that a practitioner who eliminates deluded modes of thinking, unskillful actions, enters a free state of mind that is the goal of practice, um, gives up the here and beyond and sheds the, the old worn out skin. This is kind of our frame metaphor. And then kind of illustrating that metaphor, there are all these smaller um, sets of metaphors that Kim read earlier. And let me just say something about each of those in reverse order. First, the little individual ones, and then the overarching one. And I'll, I will get to that, the here and beyond that was, uh, that, that was asked about. But, um, the little metaphors, I'm going to call them the little metaphors, the specific metaphors, the illustrative metaphors, they are drawn from the natural surroundings of, um, of the Buddhist time. But they're very carefully selected. Um, and the fact that they're natural metaphors um, or metaphors drawn from the natural world is, is quite significant. The, the Buddhist era was characterized by large cities, by extensive commerce, by global trade, if you will, and by many of the problems that we associate with our lives. Um, and yet these metaphors aren't drawn from that life. Other, other suttas uh, do draw from those. They, they speak of cities. They speak of urban, um, urban life. These are, these are drawn from nature, I think, for a couple of reasons. But the most important one is that the process of freedom, the process of the path is a natural path, has a natural course. And in particular, once set in motion, it leads inexorably toward greater freedom. And this underlies all these metaphors. For example, the ending of attachment is like the drying up of a fast-flowing stream. The ending of obsession with ourselves, with our, our sense of self, our defensive self. It is like the um, destruction of a fragile bridge of reeds by a great flood. And then there are some metaphors that involve, in addition to natural processes, human agency. The, the snake, the skin doesn't just shed. The snake exerts effort to shed the skin. Um, the ending of craving is like plucking a lotus growing in a lake. Seeing clear the absence of self in the aggregates is like searching for flowers and then seeing and understanding that all oh, flowers grow in certain places and not others. The removal of anger is like using herbs or medicine to remove a, state, a snake spreading venom. So in each of these, there's some human agency. These metaphors then balance effort and allowing. And none, in each case, they, they make the point that it's a natural process, and that our engagement with our own freedom, freeing, is natural. It's a natural process. And we can, as Kim said, we can rely on this. We can trust in this. We can have confidence in this, that this path 
moves in this one direction. So those are the, the sort of smaller sets of metaphors, as I'm calling them. And I'm wondering, Diana, if you can reread the verses, uh, not reread, but read the verses that then refer to this larger frame metaphor. Yes, I'd be happy to. And apologies if you can hear this noise in the background. I don't know if you can, but uh, of course, construction just started here. So here we go. I'm starting with verse number eight. They have not run too far nor run back, but have gone beyond all this proliferation. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far is a snake, its old worn out skin. I'm doing snake for a serpent here. It just feels more natural to me. They have not run too far nor run back, for they know that nothing in the world is what it seems. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a snake, its old worn out skin. They have not run too far, nor run back, knowing nothing is what it seems free of greed. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a snake, its old worn out skin. They have not run too far, nor run back, knowing nothing is what it seems, free of lust. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a snake, its old worn out skin. They have not run too far, nor run back, knowing nothing is what it seems, free of hate. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a snake, its old worn out skin. They have not run too far, nor run back, knowing nothing is what it seems, free of delusion. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a snake, its old worn out skin. Back to you, David. Thanks, Diana. Yeah. Wonderful to just hear those repeating phrases. And as I talk now, I'm, I'm just going to let sort of how they land now be reflected too in some of the words that come forth. But so this frame metaphor is itself complex. It has several different parts. This idea that a mendicant, a practitioner like ourselves, who has neither run too far nor too far, run, neither run too far nor run back, I think captures this idea that's come up in the little metaphors of balancing, appropriately, skillfully balancing effort and allowing. That is our agency, what we add with the practice to leaning into the natural letting go that's uh, part of the path. Paired with a series of characterizations of the freedom that's available in the path, maybe, maybe more in the path of practice than at the end of it, beyond the path of practice about which more in a moment. So without greed, without attachment, without aversion, without obsession with the self, uh, knowing experience is not as it seems, perhaps, knowing, understanding that experience uh, is empty, perhaps, or unreal. And then arriving at this idea of giving up the here and the beyond, which there was a question about. And yeah, this is tricky because it seems to mean something here different than it typically does. And some translators, including Bhikkhu Bodhi, instead of saying the near and far shore, which might be confusing, 
say the here and the beyond. The um, the here and the beyond, as I hear the verses today from Diana, um, seem to refer to um, the um, the the whole sphere of conditioned existence of both suffering and the path of practice that lead to the end of suffering. And you can notice this in your own practice sometimes that there can be um, a um, a focus of wanting to um, get completely out of this realm of practice and of human existence, a transcendent wish, and also um, constant um, constant distractions from the here and now. And yet, this seems to direct us towards the importance of being fully here without clinging, without clinging to what's here, possessions, self, um, job, titles, and without clinging to some idea of what comes later, but being fully here now. Being, as some people say, sort of in a in the stream, resting in a stream of non-clinging. The very profound idea that's available to us in these in these metaphors. And as I think several of the questions and fellow teachers have pointed out, um, this is indeed like a snake shedding its skin. That is, the old skin is gone, and so too is the effort needed to shed it. When it's gone, it's gone in this moment. So I'm going to leave it there and turn it back over to Diana. Thank you, David. And now we'd like to hear from you guys. Do you have some questions or some comments about this middle portion of this sutta? Which, you know, has some of these repetitive elements. Maybe I'll I'll throw in something here as I was listening to myself uh, say this, that uh, for some of these verses, let's see, um, 10, 11, 12, 13. The second line is like, knowing nothing is what it seems, free of greed. I think I would have, to make the English a little bit better, I think I would have put free of greed, knowing nothing is what it seems. This idea that when we don't have greed, things look different. And this idea of uh, greed, there's a, like, it's mine or somehow related to me in some way. So free of greed, free of lust, free of hate, free of delusion. When those things aren't in the mind, then uh, experience is different. And then maybe I'll just say, you know, the way I like. Okay, go on, David. Oh, I was going to say, I like that. I think that's a really great suggestion. And it, 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 I think encourages us, all of us here, to be creative in our interactions with these texts. Switch things around. It's totally legitimate to make them part of your practice in the way it seems. I think what thing Diana points to that's really clear in this is that the world isn't as it seems because the world of experience is actually free of our projections, which we can come to notice in our practice. So it's not as it seems and that it's not mine. <laughs> And when that's understood, uh, there's, there's a lot of freedom available. Thank you, David. And uh, Adam, I see what you have said, but in one more, I just also want to say this idea of um, it being mine, it sometimes is so subtle. 
it's amazing how subtle it can be. And this is part of the advantage of retreat practice. When the mind starts to get settled, it can see more and more subtle ways in which we are kind of like appropriating our experiences and making it uh, occur to an individual or some center that we think everything is happening to. And as the mind uh, sheds more and more and more, we start to see more and more subtle ways in which we are projecting this onto our experience or onto the experience, we should say. Okay, so uh, Adam. Oh, hi. Well, I think actually you, you covered um, a, a little bit there, what I was only going to briefly uh, say. So um, it was just that um, the recurrent phrase, neither run too far nor run back. And it's just just, just the, the feeling of um, uh, sensitizing uh, to the subtle movements in one's thoughts. As such a, you know, it gives, um, um, seems to give an emphasis on that, on that movement, being sensitizing as to when you run too far or, or run back. And, and then it seems like, um, you know, there's sort of, it comes down in many ways, it seems, to the three, the three roots, the three poisons. So we've got multiple terms here. We've got the, um, the lust and the craving, um, and, uh, various sort of, um, variations of it. But in a simple way, if one wished to sort of encapsulate this, this movement in, in the mind, uh, and then in relation to those three, um that seems um that was just something that seemed prominent mm, thank you um, so thank you yeah thank you adam so not only do we have these three unwholesome roots greed hatred and delusion but also different ways in which they show up we have the word craving and later we're going to see underlying tendencies hindrances like all these things that get in the way but Adam, you're right. They all stem from this. And maybe I'll um, say something that's been implied in a lot of what we've been talking about, including what Adam said, but maybe I'll just be a little bit more explicit. One way we can understand this idea of not run too far nor run back, there's multiple ways, but one way is just to be here, 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 in this present moment, just here. Just kind of this uh, real emphasis on that. So, and does anybody else have uh, some comments or questions? Hi, Peggy. Hi. <clears throat> I was um, pondering that too, the, the running forward or back, and also in terms of conditions, um, if it could mean. Sort of the delusion of thinking this needs to change or this needs to change before there can be peace or presence and that that possibly could be a delusion. Things might be okay just as they are mm. or workable or practicable. Beautiful, beautiful, right? This uh, This is 
humans, we love to do this. Well, things will be better as soon as this, or I can find freedom as soon as that. And but the what the Buddhist yeah. you know, right here, right here, we can find freedom, even though it doesn't and, matter. Differences. Yeah, oh, I just think that's such an important uh, perspective. And again, I think it's something that arises naturally from both of these two texts. And in a moment, Kim is going to sort of summarize both of these. But we, we chose these, selected these, because in part they point in some um, directions that I think lead us back to core, core aspects of the practice, like the present moment nature of what's available. Uh, and... Uh, so anyway, I just, I really like that idea that, yeah, part of what it means to say, let it rain or let it shed is giving up this sense of, yeah, waiting or looking for something beyond this present moment or getting attached to anything here. Both of these in their metaphors and the repetition that keep leading us back to this here now. So well said, Peggy. There's a wonderful um, quote in the introduction to a book called The Island, um, which is by Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro. It's various teachings on Nibbana, but um, the introduction or the, yeah, I guess it's the introduction is by Ajahn Sumedho, their teacher. And he says that, um, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, when many of us begin practice, we come with the idea that I'm a person who has lots of craving and clinging and attachment, and I have to work really hard in order to let go of all of that. And so that's kind of like our stance in how we're coming to the path. And maybe we have to start there. But then he goes on to say, mostly this ends up in frustration because uh, this basic uh, delusion that that's what's going on. That's what, you know, we're a person who clings and has to let go of that has never been challenged. And there comes a point where you start to question, oh, is it really true that I'm this person who has all this terrible clinging and it will be better when I have let all of that go? <laughs> um, so you know, sometimes that's a useful image, but sometimes it isn't. So maybe um, we'll end here with a, uh my reading the last verses, and then um, we'll go back to Kim here. They have no underlying tendencies at all and are rid of unskillful roots. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a snake, its old worn out skin. They have nothing born of distress at all that might cause them to return to the near shore. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a snake, its old worn out skin. They have nothing born of entanglement at all that would shackle them to a new life. Such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a serpent, its old worn out skin. They've given up the five hindrances, untroubled, rid of doubt, free of thorns, such a mendicant sheds the near shore and the far as a snake, its old worn out skin. Beautiful. Thanks for reading that, Diana. That takes us through that entire sutta. So um, just one little pause before I say something to summarize, which is um, I'm putting in the chat a uh, link 
or if you wanted to offer Donna for this program, if you're so moved, um, this will take you to a page that indicates that it's associated with this particular class. So that makes it easy on Sati Center's end. But if you miss the link, you can also just go to the website. That works fine, fine also. So, um, so we've had a couple of interesting days together. And looking at these two suttas, they're very ancient. This text is, um, they're you know, one of the earlier strata, let's say, of the teachings. And so the language can sound a little sparse. And also Diana mentioned about how verse is very difficult to translate. It has some uh, subtleties to it. But we could broadly say that, you know, let it rain, the Dhaniya Sutta, number 1.2, we saw that it was about recognizing and turning toward what are actually reliable wealth and security, um, you know, regardless of our actual or perceived level of material wealth. Spiritual refuge is available as a, a superior form of wealth and security. And if we can see that, we'll be able to turn toward it, as Dania did near the end of the sutta, deciding to take refuge instead of only proclaiming how important, how good as cows were and how they could handle the rain, the physical rain. So then the question arises, well, what does that mean? Once we've made that movement, how does the path go? Um, and so then this first sutta, 1.1, the snake, says something about this onward path, onward leading path of letting go. How is it that we're going to get to inner safety and peace? What do we have to give up? The near shore, the far, anger, you know, lust, the hindrances, the underlying tendencies. There's kind of a laundry list of things that um, obscure the mind in various ways that prevent it from partaking of this true wealth and security. And so um, it reminds us that there is actually a way to get from here to there. We saw in these suttas some very powerful images and metaphors, which can reach us in a different way than just words or ideas. I think these suttas are very much meant to be felt as well as heard. And so our use of the images with the Indid and the video and the guided meditations are all supportive of bringing in other uh, channels for us to relate to these texts. Um, we can also remember that when these were read, they were um, they had a rhythm to them. Diana mentioned this at the beginning. So imagine that this would have a nice lilt to it and kind of a, a rhythm or a pattern that would imprint itself in our subconscious in some way and also help us connect with it. So the whole system works together and all these components come together to help us take in a rather challenging message, which is that there are higher aims in life than material security which is not in the end very secure and take a while to fully hear this teaching. Um, but I realize we're at the top of the hour. There's, I hope the engagement has been good. So let's, let's just dedicate the merit of our effort and time and good intentions together. So, you know, may it be that um, our engagement with these texts and with each other and in, in building together kind of a shared understanding of these texts um, informs our practice and helps not only our own heart shed and become a bit freer, but also influences those around us to feel some of that also. 
And so as we go forth in the world, whether it's the beginning or the end of your day, um, may you take, carry with you some degree of peace and happiness and well-being. May all beings be happy, peaceful, and free. Thanks, everyone. Feel free to unmute and say goodbye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take care, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you very much to the teachers. And thank you, everyone in general. Take care. Bye. Bye.